0: So America is considered one of the richest countries in the world. But if you really take a look at the experience of most people living here, you wouldn't think so. And that's what Heather McGee observed. So many things that you would expect in such a wealthy country are missing.
1: I don't mean, you know, self-driving cars, which I actually don't think we need, but <laughs> mm-hmm. um, or or laundry that does itself, which would be fabulous. But yep. um, I really mean things like universal health care and reliable Mm -hmm. modern infrastructure and a well-funded school in every neighborhood and wages that keep workers out of poverty
0: the basics yeah
1: a country of our wealth and sophistication should be able to deliver to its people and we do not and the basic question that set me off on my travels was why is it that we can't seem to have nice
0: things Welcome to TED Business. I'm Madupa Akinola. And with that question on her mind, Heather left her job at a public policy think tank and headed on a trip across the country to talk to experts and regular old people about why we don't have these kinds of nice things. It led her to the revelation that racism doesn't just harm the oppressed, but actually harms everybody. And it also led to a New York Times bestselling book called The Some of Us. So today... You'll hear Heather's 2019 TED Talk. Then you'll hear me talk to Heather about how we can apply her ideas to business. So over to Heather after a quick break.
1: I am a public policy wonk. I investigate data that points to problems in the American economy. Problems like rising household debt, declining wages and benefits, shortfalls in public revenue. And I try to pinpoint solutions to make our economy more prosperous for more people. I geek out about tax policy and infrastructure investments, and I get really excited by a gracefully designed regulatory regime. (laughs) These are the kinds of topics that I was talking about on a public television live call-in show in August of 2016. I was about halfway through the program when a man called in, identified as Gary from North Carolina, and he said, I'm a white male and I'm prejudiced. He then went on to detail his prejudice, talking about Black men and gangs and drugs and crime. But then he said something that I'll never forget. He said, but I want to change, and I want to know what I can do to become a better American. Now, remember, my career is about economic policy, (laughs) as translated into dollars and cents, not personal thoughts and feelings. But when I opened my mouth to respond to this man on live television, the most surprising words came out. I said, thank you. I thanked him for admitting his prejudice, for wanting to change and for knowing somehow that that would make him a better American. The exchange between Gary and me went viral. It's been viewed over eight million times and inspired waves of social media commentary and news coverage. And I think people were surprised that a black woman would show such compassion for a prejudiced white man, and they were surprised that a white man would admit his bias on national television. Not long after Gary and my viral moment, uh, we met in person. He said that he had taken my advice. He said that my words had been like someone wiped the dust from a window and let the light in. Over the years, Gary and I have become friends. And Gary would tell you that I've taught him a lot about systemic racism in America and public policy, but I've learned a lot from Gary, too. And the biggest lesson for me has been that Gary's prejudice has caused him to suffer. Fear, anxiety, isolation. And it's made me rethink many of the economic problems I've been focusing on my entire career. I wondered, is it possible that our society's racism has likewise been backfiring on the very same people set up to benefit from privilege? Driven by this question, I've spent the past few years traveling the country researching and writing a book. My conclusion? Racism leads to bad policymaking. It's making our economy worse. And not just in ways that disadvantage people of color. It turns out it's not a zero sum. Racism is bad for white people, too. Take, for example, America's underinvestment in our public goods, the things that we all need that we share in common, our schools and roads and bridges. Our infrastructure gets a D-plus from the American Society of Civil Engineers, and we invest less per capita than almost every other advanced nation. But it wasn't always this way. I traveled to Montgomery, Alabama, and there I saw how racism can destroy a public good, and the public will to support it. In the 1930s and 40s, the United States went on a nationwide building boom of public amenities funded by tax dollars, which in Montgomery, Alabama included the Oak Park Pool, which was the grandest one for miles. You know, back then, people didn't have air conditioners, and so they spent their hot summer days in a steady rotation of sunning and splashing and then cooling off under a ring of nearby trees. It was the meeting place for the town. Except the Oak Park pool, though it was funded by all of Montgomery's citizens, was for whites only. When a federal court finally deemed this unconstitutional, the reaction of the town council was swift. Effective January 1st, 1959, they decided they would drain the public pool rather than let Black families swim, too. This destruction of public goods was replicated across the country in towns, not just in the South. Towns closed their public parks, pools and schools, all in response to desegregation orders all throughout the 1960s. In Montgomery, they shut down the entire Parks Department for a decade. They closed the recreation centers. They even sold off the animals in the zoo. Today, You can walk the grounds of Oak Park, as I did, but very few people do. They never rebuilt the pool. Racism has a cost for everyone. I remember having that same thought on September 15th, 2008, when I learned the breaking news that Lehman Brothers was collapsing. Now, Lehman was like the other financial firms that would go under in the coming days, done in by overexposure to a toxic financial instrument based on something that used to be simple and safe, a 30-year fixed-rate home loan. But the mortgages at the center and the root of the financial crisis had strange new terms. And they were developed and aggressively marketed for years in black and brown, middle-class communities, like the one that I visited when I met a homeowner named Glenn. Glenn had owned a home on a leafy street in the Mount Pleasant neighborhood of Cleveland for over a decade, but when I met him, he was near foreclosure. Like nearly all of his neighbors, he'd received a knock on the door from a broker promising to refinance his mortgage. But what the broker didn't tell him was that this was a new kind of mortgage a mortgage with an inflated interest rate, and a balloon payment and a prepayment penalty if he tried to get out of it. Now, the common misperception then and still today is that people like Glenn were buying properties they couldn't afford, that they themselves were risky borrowers. I saw how this stereotype made it harder for policymakers to see the crisis for what it was back when we still had time to stop it. But that's all it was, a stereotype. The majority of subprime mortgages went to people who had good credit, like Glenn. And African Americans and Latinos were three times as likely, even if they had good credit, than white people to get sold these toxic loans. The problem wasn't the borrower, the problem was the loan. After the crash, most of the nation's big lenders, from Wells Fargo to Countrywide, would go on to be fined for racial discrimination. But that realization came too late. These loans, super profitable for the lenders but designed to fail for the borrowers, spread out past the confines of black and brown neighborhoods like Glen's and into the wider, whiter mortgage market. All of the nation's big Wall Street firms bet on these loans. At its peak, one out of every five mortgages in the country was in this mold. And the crisis, the crisis that my colleagues and I saw coming would go on to cost us all 19 trillion in lost wealth. Pensions, home equity, savings. Eight million jobs vanished. A home ownership rate that has never recovered. My years of advocating in vain for homeowners like Glenn left me convinced we would not have had a financial crisis if it weren't for racism. In 2017, I traveled to Mississippi, where a group of auto factory workers was trying to organize into a union. Now, the benefits they were fighting for, higher pay, better health care coverage, a real pension, they would have helped everybody at the plant. But in person after person that I talked to, white, black, for the union, against the union, race kept coming up. A white man named Joey put it this way. He said, White workers think I ain't voting yes if the blacks are voting yes. If the blacks are for it, I'm against it. A white man named Chip told me, the idea is that if you uplift black people, you're down in white people. It's like the world's got this crab-in-a-barrel mentality. Now, the union vote failed. Wages at the plant are still lower than their unionized peers, and people there still worry about their health care. You know, it's, it's tempting, perhaps, to focus on the prejudiced attitudes of the men and the workers that I heard in Mississippi, but I'm more interested in holding accountable the people who are selling racist ideas for their profit than those who are desperate enough to buy it. My travels also took me to places where I saw, however, that it doesn't have to be this way. I went to Maine, the whitest state in the nation, the oldest, where there are more deaths every year than births, and I went to this dying mill town called Lewiston that is being revitalized by new people, mostly African, mostly Muslim, immigrants and refugees. There I met a woman named Cecile, whose parents had been part of the last wave of new people to come to Lewiston. These are French-Canadian mill workers at the turn of the century. Cecile was retired, but she had found a new purpose in life by organizing Congolese refugees to join with the white retirees at the Franco Heritage Center. (laughs) These men and women from the Congo We're helping these retirees remember the French that they hadn't spoken since their childhoods. And together, these two communities helped each other feel at home. You know, for all the political talk about the newcomers being a drain on the town, a bipartisan think tank found that the local refugee community there created $40 million in tax revenue and $130 million in income. And I talked to the town administrator who was boasting about the fact that Lewiston was building a new school when all the rest of towns like theirs in Maine was closing them. You know, it costs us so much to remain divided. This zero-sum thinking that what's good for one group has to come at the expense of another, it's what's gotten us into this mess. I believe it's time to reject that old paradigm and realize that our fates are linked. An injury to one is an injury to all. You know, we have a choice. Our nation was founded on a belief in a hierarchy of human value. But we are about to be a country with no racial majority. So we can keep pretending like we're not all on the same team. We can keep sabotaging our success and hamstringing our own players. Or we can let the proximity of so much difference reveal our common humanity. And we can finally invest in our greatest asset, our people, all of our people. Thank you.
0: So I want to bring Heather back on to get practical, to understand what does it look like to apply these ideas to everyday work? What does a business leader, a manager, any type of worker need to do to apply these ideas? And I also really wanted to hear more about Gary. Can you tell me a little bit more about what specific advice did you give him that you really think made a difference? We started
1: by having phone calls. We talked about you know, about racism and prejudice. So I really just encouraged him to read. I encouraged him to turn away from the cable news and to read. He, he then subsequently told me about going down to the local bookstore and grabbing a whole stack of books from the African-American history section and plopping them down on the counter and telling the woman behind the checkout counter, I'm working on my racism. <laughs> <laughs> Kind of proud of
0: it. I love it. What's so powerful about what you say in the talk when you describe Gary is just kind of like this power of the one-on-one connection. Mm -hmm. And that's great and important for us to do, but I know you focus on policy too. What is the policy way that you kind of scale this one-on-one thing to get people to better understand each other on a broader basis? Yeah.
1: So the core idea in the sum of us is that what's really blocking progress on economic opportunity in America is this zero-sum worldview. This idea that is now quite prevalent among white Americans, less so among Americans of color, the idea that progress for people of color has to come at white folks expense. A dollar in my pocket means a dollar less in yours. And of course, Economically speaking, we know it's, in fact, the exact opposite, right? Citigroup's internal think tank had a report last summer that showed that if we had closed the racial economic divides 20 years ago, mm-hmm. our economy would have been $16 trillion larger. The Federal Reserve Bank of San Francisco put out a report in January saying that the economic gaps between white men and everybody else cost the economy in 2019 trillion dollars in just one year alone. So it is very clear that more opportunity is good for the overall whole. Mm -hmm. But that's not the story that has been sold to the majority of white voters. The story that's been sold to the majority of white voters is one that has us really rooting against people that we see as our competition. It's a story that leads to a certain stinginess in American society, a a real reversal, actually, of the kinds of public policies that made the greatest middle class the world had ever seen Mm -hmm. in the middle of the 20th century. Things like free college, subsidized home ownership, high levels of unionization that allowed for people to bargain together for higher wages, a higher minimum wage. Mm -hmm. So, you know, we had the formula, for broadly shared prosperity um, really between the thirties and early sixties in the United States. And yet because that entire social contract was really done for the benefit of whites only, Mm -hmm. there was a real crisis when integration and the civil rights movement came. And it really feels like we've been living in the era of the drained pool of the majority of white voters turning their backs on the formula Mm -hmm. that created the great middle class because of of racism, often
0: unconscious, um, but
1: race nonetheless.
0: So then as a person who's listening to this, a business person, be it an everyday worker, a manager, a leader of an organization, of a business, what advice would you give them in terms of what they need to do to ensure that we prosper together so that we don't have this kind of us versus them type of thing?
1: Well, I think the first thing that needs to happen is that we need to recognize the problem, recognize where there's that zero sum thinking that has potentially infected y- your workplace. Uh, you know, the sense of the conversation around diversity. Is there a feeling like if a person of color or a woman gets a job, that means a loss mm-hmm. for for the white man. You know, is mm-hmm. that an underlying tension in the DEI conversations? Mm-hmm. Should you name it and raise it and make the case that these strategies that can increase diversity, equity, and inclusion are great for the bottom line and can cause growth and expansion for everyone?
0: I want to go back to this zero-sum idea, partially because I know some of our listeners might be like, but there's like one promotion spot, and if they get it and I don't, that's zero-sum. Mm-hmm advice about that type of thinking when there are some scarce resources in organizations where it does feel like someone wins and someone loses. How do you think about that?
1: Yeah, well, sure. I mean, I think that my, my argument here is that there is often one promotion, one manager slot that's open, but that's also because the company is as big as it is. I think the idea is that investing in the the formula that creates more innovation and critical thinking, which is diversity, will lead to growth. And so, mm-hmm. you know, next quarter, there will be another management slot open potentially. You know, someone who was a dear friend of yours uh, very much mm-hmm. influenced me in my thinking about what is the sort of business case for why it is that diversity Really matters. What is it about being in groups and on teams with people from different backgrounds that at first can seem like it's difficult, right? Because you're not aware of each other's, you know, sort of references and cultural touch points. But as Dr. Catherine Phillips of Columbia Business School, the late Catherine Phillips, really, you know, dedicated her career to amassing the evidence to show it is that friction that yes. creates the productive energy of diversity. And that that, to me, is just such a an exciting insight as to why it's worth it to invest
0: and one of the things that she was really good about is also trying to come up with systems and processes and policies to ensure that, you know, everyone prospers together. Are there particular policies that you think, really are lacking in business environments that need to be created, like, immediately.
1: I think so often the kind of first-order pushback that you receive is that there's a pipeline problem, that there aren't enough qualified candidates of color or enough qualified women or whatever it is that is your underrepresented group. hmm And I think what that shows is that the... Social and professional networks of the people within your company are not connected to the places Mm -hmm. where those people are. And so you may need to hire a full time recruiter who has networks in communities where you don't and your staff doesn't. And you may need to lift the burden off of your staff and managers. And often, it often means you have to slow down the recruitment process a little Mm -hmm. bit because you do Mm -hmm. have to look further than the first three people to apply to the job.
0: My last question for you, what is one of the things you're most hopeful for as an outcome of your book or as an outcome of people listening to your Ted talk?
1: I hope that the sum of us and the talk give people of all backgrounds a way to see a common story mm-hmm. of the distorting and poisonous impacts of racism in our society that, that allow people to come in from their camps and feel that a more just and equal society is actually better for everyone. Give mm-hmm. people a way to talk across the divides and, and see themselves all in, in the future that we are making together. That's my hope.
0: I like that hope. I have the same hope and I'm just so grateful that you took this time today and that you took the time to write a book, a powerful book that I know is already having such an amazing impact. So thank you.
1: Thank you. Thank you for what you do. Thank you for having this platform and for inviting me to it. I really appreciate it. And hopefully we'll be able to have a glass
0: of wine at some point yes, in the, in that the future. Yes, would that be nice? That's it for today. Thanks so much for listening. Kim Naderfein-Peterza is our producer and Sam Bear is our mixer. Fact check for this episode was done by Eliza Solomon. And extra special thanks to Anna Phelan, Michelle Quint, Corey Hagem, and Colin Helms. I'll talk to you again next week.